Hi, welcome to my podcast, where today I'll talk about flying the spaceship. This podcast comes from chapter six of my book, Visions of the Church, that was first published in 2004 in one volume, together with Visions of America. In Visions of the Church, I use the troubled but ultimately triumphant flight of Apollo 13 as the narrative thread to provide an overview of 2,000 years of church history in a mere 80 pages. This podcast discusses how St. Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, and John and Charles Wesley kept the church on course over many centuries. My name is Tim Harner. I am a Christian author and apologist, a graduate of Houghton College and of Harvard Law School, where I was an editor of the Harvard Law Review. As an attorney, my primary role has been as a general counsel. Therefore, I call the six books that I've written the General Counsel series. The first four books of the series outline the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, providing scriptural backing for the final installments of the series that outline the history of America and the history of the Church Universal. I post my latest thoughts regularly on my website, timharner.com. And now, as I talk about flying the spaceship, Let's pray that the Lord will let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in the sight of the Lord our God, who is our strength and our Redeemer. Chapter 6, Flying the Spaceship At the moment that disaster struck the mission, the flight path of Apollo 13 would loop it around the moon and send it back in the general direction of Earth. However, Unless the astronauts fired the rocket on the lunar module to adjust its course, they would miss Earth by about 40,000 miles. It was imperative to fire the rocket on the lunar module as soon as possible to get on the correct course towards Earth before anything else went wrong so that the rocket could not be fired at all. In order to fire the rocket, the astronauts had to be certain that the spaceship was oriented correctly in space. Otherwise, they'd fire the rocket in the wrong direction and make things even worse than they already were. As the command module was shutting down, the astronauts raced to copy the navigational data from the computer in the command module into the computer in the lunar module. Normally, the astronauts could double-check the computer by taking sightings of the stars, just as navigators on ships had navigated for centuries. But at the moment, it was impossible to see any navigational stars. A cloud of gas and debris surrounded the spaceship, blocking any view of the stars. With help from Mission Control in Houston, the astronauts double-checked their arithmetic as they entered the data. Adjustments to the data had to be made to account for the different orientation of the lunar module compared to the command module. With this task accomplished, the astronauts fired the engine on the lunar module. It worked perfectly. Still, they would be much more confident that they were on the right course if they could see the stars to check their location. At last, someone thought of using the one star that they still could see, our own sun. Eureka! Checking their course against the sun confirmed their position. The astronauts successfully looped around the moon and began coming closer to Earth. Nevertheless, the situation remained grim. 
On their current course, it would take too long to reach home. It was by no means certain that the supplies on the tiny lunar module, designed to keep only two men alive on the moon, could keep three men alive long enough to get home. Therefore, the astronauts fired the rocket on the lunar module a second time, speeding their return to Earth so that they could reach it safely in time. Then Mission Control radioed more grim news to the astronauts. For some unknown reason, the spaceship was drifting off course. It was essential to be precisely on course because if they entered the atmosphere at too steep an angle, the heat and stress would crush the command module. On the other hand, if they entered the atmosphere at too shallow an angle, the command module would skip off the atmosphere back into space like a stone skipping off the water. So, whether the command module entered the atmosphere too steeply or too shallowly, the end result was the same. The crew died. Instead, the astronauts must fire the rocket on the lunar module a third time in order to get back precisely on course. But there was a big problem. To conserve electricity, the astronauts had shut off their computer as soon as they finished firing their rocket the second time. There was no way to use the computer to navigate. The astronauts would have to find another way. This time, they navigated by first orienting themselves towards the sun and then towards the earth. They centered the earth in the crosshairs of a special gun sight that was normally used for rendezvous maneuvers. Mission Control assured them that as long as they kept their gun sight fixed on the earth, they'd be firing their rocket in the right direction to reach the planet safely. To be successful, all three astronauts had to work together flawlessly. One turned on the rocket. One kept the spaceship correctly oriented. One counted the seconds so that the rocket burned for the right amount of time. And amazingly, it worked. Apollo 13 was back on course, heading towards its plunge through Earth's atmosphere. Working together, the crew would make it home and live. God, the voyage of Apollo 13 took only a few days. The voyage of the church from the fall of Rome, the 400s, to the rise of America, 1776, took more than a thousand years. In one key aspect, however, the voyage of Apollo 13 and the voyage of the church were the same. God did the impossible. During the voyage of Apollo 13, our utter dependence upon God is best illustrated by the role of gravity in getting the spaceship back to Earth. It was the moon's gravity that bent the spaceship's path back toward the course that it needed to take to reach Earth, which represented life. And it was the Earth's gravity that accelerated the spaceship as it neared the planet so that the trip was completed quickly enough to save the crew before supplies ran out. Compared to the immense role of gravity in shaping the spaceship's destiny, the effect of the rockets was puny at best. Similarly, it was God's amazing grace that bent the church's path back toward the course that it needed to take to reach heaven, the destination representing eternal life. And it is God's amazing grace that is accelerating the voyage of the church so that the days of its voyage will be shortened enough for humanity to survive despite the ravages of sin. Compared to the immense role of God's amazing grace in shaping our personal destinies, 
and the destiny of the church, our efforts are puny at best. Full credit belongs to the power of God the Father, who determines the destiny of each of us and of the entire church. Indeed, as we discussed when describing the launch of the immense Saturn V rocket, even the rockets of our own effort are actually the result of the amazing grace of God. The fuel for our rockets is the blood of God the Son, Jesus Christ, the blood that Jesus voluntarily shed to save us from our sins through his amazing grace. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16 And while the Father determines our destiny, and the Son provides us fuel for the voyage, the Holy Spirit comforts and guides us along our journey. To please God, we must follow Jesus Christ in the way that brings us righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is our true home. The Unknown Christians Across this immense span of generations, only a handful of Christians are remembered. Most of the people whose righteousness, joy, and peace lighted the centuries from the fall of Rome until the rise of America are unknown Christians. The cathedrals that are scattered throughout Europe are our most fitting monuments to these unknown Christians. Two of my favorites are found in the heart of Paris, Saint-Chapelle and Notre-Dame. Actually, Saint-Chapelle is so tiny that it may not even qualify as a true cathedral. Nevertheless, it is a stunning monument to the yearning of people to touch the beauty of eternity. I do not believe that there is any sight on earth more beautiful than the stained glass windows of Saint-Chapelle in the sunlight. The infinite value of such fragile beauty speaks of the infinite value of each person's fragile life and of each person's fragile quest for eternal life. Truly, when we stand amidst the color and light of Saint-Chapelle's windows, we feel the truth of Christmas, the truth that we mere mortals can experience the infinite beauty of God through the windows of our souls. And where Saint-Chapelle is awesome in its fragile beauty, Notre-Dame is awesome in its majestic beauty. The strength of stone walls, pillars, and arches speaks of the infinite strength of the majestic church that God is building. Please remember that I wrote this about the infinite strength of the majestic church in Notre Dame before the terrible fire in uh, 2019 that devastated the cathedral, but it is being rebuilt. When we stand amidst the soaring buttresses of Notre Dame's Gothic arches, and contemplate the beauty of its ancient rose window, we feel the truth of Easter, the truth that we mere mortals can experience eternal life through the strength of God that empowers us to gaze forever on the majestic beauty of his holiness. Here our soul finds home. St. Thomas Aquinas Fortunately, we do know the names of some of the Christians who steered the church on its journey across the millennia from the fall of Rome to the rise of America. And few names from this era shine more brightly than the name of St. Thomas Aquinas. Just as the astronauts desperately copied the data from their computer in the command module onto their computer in the lunar module, medieval Christians copied ancient books and studied them. Around the time of Aquinas, a major body of ancient knowledge was recovered by Christians in Western Europe, 
the ancient Greek writings of Aristotle. Aristotle's writings became available again from translations made by Arab scholars. It was no small task to understand this body of philosophy and to reconcile it with Christian theology. Aquinas was perhaps the greatest scholar to undertake the challenge. Curiously, Aquinas was born at almost the same time as St. Francis of Assisi died. Much of his life was spent in Paris, where the leading scholars of his time frequently gathered. In the Paris that Aquinas knew, Saint-Chapelle, with its stunning stained glass windows, was slowly being built. Meanwhile, a short distance away, the Cathedral of Notre Dame was also under construction. It was only about halfway finished. It took more than two centuries to complete Notre Dame using plans that an unknown architect, an unknown Christian, bequeathed to succeeding generations. Aquinas did not bequeath to future generations the plans for a church built with stone. Instead, Aquinas bequeathed the vision of a church built with joy and peace. According to this vision of the church, we have joy and peace because Jesus Christ died for our sins and reconciled us to God. As Aquinas put it, to unite men to God belongs to Christ, through whom men are reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5.19 God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And so only Christ is the perfect mediator of God and men, in that through his death he reconciled the human race to God. Because Christ, by suffering out of love and obedience, gave to God more than was required to compensate for the offense of the whole human race. First, by reason of the tremendous charity from which he suffered. Second, by reason of the dignity of his life, which he gave up in atonement. For this was the life of one who was both God and man. Third, on account of the extent of the passion and the greatness of the sorrows suffered. And so Christ's passion was not merely a sufficient, but a superabundant atonement for the sins of the human race. According to, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Words such as mediator, atonement, and propitiation have a rather formal, legalistic, intimidating tone. A more user-friendly way to understand the joy and peace of Christians is to realize that the Holy Spirit enables us to become friends of God. As Aquinas put it, in friendship we quite rightly delight in the friend's presence are happy with what he says and does, and find our security in every worry so that we normally rush to friends for consolation in time of sorrow. Because the Holy Spirit makes us friends of God, whom he brings to abide in us and us in him, it is therefore through the Holy Spirit that we experience joy in God as well as security amidst earthly troubles and temptations. And so the psalmist says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and strengthen me with thy lordly spirit. Psalm 50.14 And Romans 14.17 The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, 
but justice and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And Acts 9.31, the church had peace and was edified, walking in the fear of the Lord, and was filled with the consolation of the Holy Spirit. Martin Luther The longer Apollo 13 traveled without checking the computer's data against the actual location of the stars, the more likely it became that the spaceship was losing its way. Similarly, the further the church traveled from the time of Jesus, without checking its teachings against the authority of the Bible, the more likely it became that the church was losing its way. The cloud of debris that surrounded Apollo 13 continued to make it impossible to see the stars. Fortunately, Mission Control found a way to check Apollo 13's actual orientation compared to its computer-derived orientation. They told the astronauts to check their orientation with relation to the sun, and everyone was elated to find that the spaceship's actual orientation indeed matched its computer-driven orientation. Applause broke out in mission control. Similarly, a cloud of spiritual debris sometimes surrounds the church, making it impossible to see how God wants us to live. This is debris from the lust for sex, the lust for money, the lust for power, the divisions between cultures, and the quarrels and rivalries that come from wanting to be the greatest. Nevertheless, Martin Luther found a way to check the church's actual orientation compared with this tradition-derived orientation. More than 200 years after Aquinas lived, Martin Luther told us to check our beliefs and our actions in relation to the perfect navigational star in the Bible. Only then, said the Catholic priest-turned-reformer, can we know whether we are on the right or the wrong course spiritually. But there the similarity with Apollo 13 ended. Martin Luther did not find that the course that the church was on was correctly oriented. No applause broke out after his study of the Bible. For example, the church had become corrupt through its lust for money, the sale of indulgences which promised to forgive sins in return for money. This may sound somewhat far out now, but are some of the common practices of today really much different? Comparing the reality of the way Christians were living with the way that the Bible said we should live showed Luther just how far the church had gone astray, just how far the church had drifted off course, like a herd of sheep slowly straying from their shepherd. And so Martin Luther sounded the alarm, nailing his famous 95 Theses to the church door at Wittenberg, Germany in 1517. Fortunately, Luther not only used the Bible to diagnose the disease, Martin Luther also used the Bible to show us the cure for all of our sins, the amazing grace of God. And Martin Luther learned from the Bible how this cure worked by faith in Jesus Christ. Apollo 13 corrected its course and hastened its journey home by igniting the engine on the lunar module a second time. And because the spaceship was oriented correctly, the astronauts succeeded in returning home. In the church's journey across the millennia, Martin Luther ignited the rocket engine of faith. 
And because the Bible enables the church to orient itself correctly, the church will succeed in its mission. The amazing grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ will keep us on course and bring us home in time. Here is how Luther understood the kind of faith that ignites our lives and enables the church to live the way that we should live on our journey toward eternal life. To Luther, faith was not primarily intellectual assent. It was rather the grateful, wholehearted response of one's entire being to the love of God in Christ. It was full confidence in God. Indeed, Luther believed that justification was by faith alone and that Augustine had said it before him. Experience and study had led Luther to the conviction that man could never earn God's favor by works, by good works of any kind. He did not discount good works, but to his mind, they do not earn justification, but are the fruits of faith, the response and gratitude and love to the love of God in Christ. You can find the citation to that quote in the end notes of my book, Visions of the Church. By his own account, here is how Luther experienced the faith in Christ that leads to righteousness, joy, and peace. I began to comprehend the righteousness of God through which the righteous are saved by God's grace, namely through faith, that the righteousness of God which is revealed through the gospel was to be understood in a passive sense in which God through mercy justifies man by faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now I felt exactly as though I had been born again, and I believed that I had entered paradise through widely opened doors. John Wesley After the second perfect firing of the lunar module's engine, Missing Control thought they had Apollo 13 back on course. Then, to their horror, they saw that the spaceship was straying off course. Immediately they knew that, as impossible as it seemed, the engine must be fired again. But the computer was turned off. How could the astronauts, first of all, even orient the spaceship? This time, the astronauts used both the sun and the earth. Then they kept their gun sight looking straight at the earth all the time that they fired the engine. In one respect, John Wesley was far more fortunate than the astronauts of Apollo 13. The church's computers still worked. As John Wesley oriented the church and ignited its engine more than 200 years after Martin Luther lived and died, he could still use the same computer as Aquinas used. By reading the books that had been so carefully copied, John Wesley absorbed the wisdom of many saints and the learning of many scholars, stretching back to the time of Jesus and the apostles. For example, John Wesley loved to study the writings of St. Augustine. In addition, Wesley shared Martin Luther's passion for using the Bible as the authoritative benchmark for determining the way that we should live on our journey toward eternal life. Like Luther, John Wesley knew that faith in Jesus Christ was the only way to get people's lives and the life of the church back on course. Nevertheless, John Wesley was troubled for years by his overwhelming fear of death. He worked and worked at being a good person and at converting others to Christianity. Yet he did not experience the assurance that he himself was destined for heaven instead of for hell. 
How could John Wesley find such assurance? How could John Wesley find such peace and joy? Only through the Holy Spirit. After years of searching for assurance, peace, and joy, John Wesley found them when he felt the Holy Spirit take control of his life. This moment of spiritual enlightenment came for him during a meeting of believers at Aldersgate, England. He recorded what happened in his daily journal. The speaker was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to Romans, the book of the Bible that Martin Luther was studying when he realized that the righteousness of God can only be achieved through God's amazing grace by faith in Jesus Christ. John Wesley explained in his journal that, as the speaker described, the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. John Wesley had found the way to live that leads to eternal life, and he spent the rest of his life igniting the faith of the church and pointing the church in the way that it should go. Charles Wesley John Wesley was an organizational genius. The success of Methodism is traced to his tireless efforts and skill in organizing his followers. But the contribution of his brother, Charles Wesley, was also essential to the church. Indeed, as the centuries dim the organizational successes of John Wesley, it is the hymns of Charles Wesley that are the most enduring legacy of the revival that both John and Charles Wesley led. For example, Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be, helps all people to experience the joy and peace that come when our hearts are strangely warmed by the Holy Spirit. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, O oh my God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Charles Wesley's hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, still helps all people to experience the truth of Christmas. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. 
Hark the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn King. And his hymn, Christ the Lord is Risen Today, helps all people to experience the truth of Easter. Christ the Lord is risen today, Alleluia. Sons of men and angels say, Alleluia. Raise your joys and triumphs high, Alleluia. Sing, ye heavens and earth reply, Alleluia. Love's redeeming work is done, Alleluia. Fought the fight, the battle won, Alleluia. Death in vain forbids him rise, Alleluia. Christ has opened paradise, Alleluia. Sorrowing now where Christ has led, Alleluia. Following our exalted head, Alleluia. Made like him, like him we rise, Alleluia. Ours the cross, the grave, the skies, Alleluia. The Church The astronauts of Apollo 13 learned that the key to reaching home was to keep their gun sight firmly fixed on the earth, the beginning and the end of their journey. And as Christians, we must keep our gun sight firmly fixed on Jesus Christ, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 in the King James Version. The astronauts of Apollo 13 also learned that the only way to reach home was to work together. To fire their engine successfully this third time, each astronaut performed a task that only he could perform. One astronaut controlled the engine. One astronaut described the location of the Earth so that the engine could fire in the right direction. And the third astronaut counted the seconds out loud so that the engine would burn for exactly the right amount of time. Similarly, the only way for the church to stay on course is for all Christians to work together. Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus requires all of the church, all of the body of Christ, to strive together in unity. Each Christian must perform a task that only that Christian can perform. Some must be like Aquinas, harvesting the wisdom of saints and the learning of scholars across the millennia. Some Christians will be like Martin Luther, applying the Bible as the authoritative benchmark of right and wrong. Others must be like John Wesley, sharing the assurance that the Holy Spirit gives. Some Christians must be like Charles Wesley, using their artistic skills, whether as songwriters, painters, sculptors, or architects, to help us experience joy and peace. And all Christians must be like the unknown Christians, willing to labor in total obscurity to build the church for the glory of God, building Saint-Chapelles and Notre-Dames, experiencing the truth of Christmas and the truth of Easter, admiring the fragile beauty of each life and the majestic beauty of the church. I hope you enjoyed this podcast today. If you did, please share it with a friend and find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as my website, timharner.com. Until we are together again, may the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord make his face to shine upon us and be gracious unto us. May the Lord turn his face toward us 
and give us peace.